Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. This morning's preaching portion will be the whole chapter of Genesis chapter 22. This is the fourth sermon in a series that we're going through this fall on the patriarchs. We spent four Sundays looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah, and uh, next week, we'll, we'll, uh, uh, Pastor David Stoddard will be preaching a sermon on the life of Joseph. But this morning, we're looking at uh, Genesis 22. The title of my sermon is Abraham's Test. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, 
declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother, Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makkah. So far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. God, we have before us this morning a, a most vivid tale and a painful, a painful one. But what beauty is here for the eyes of faith and for the humble heart who believes in the promising and promise-keeping God. So Lord, with a challenging passage such as this, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and questions and contemplations of each one of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a boy, I was given some stationery with different sayings or proverbs on them, if you will, and one of them, an anonymous saying, has, has always stayed with me since that time. It's a saying about friendship. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. But walk beside me and be my friend. I wonder, how are your friendships? It seems to me that our day and these days, people struggle with friendships. By my reckoning, friendships are in trouble these days. The reasons are too numerous to list, but surely one reason is we're just too busy. And add to this, we are an impatient group of people, and real friendships take time, and the grace that develops over time as you work through things together. We are impatient. We're also selfish and anxious. And these are not good ingredients in which the seeds of friendship can be planted. And it certainly doesn't help that our noses are constantly staring at some screen or another wherever we go. And if human friendships are struggling, what would that say about your friendship with God? Now, you might wonder, friendship with God? How can somebody be friends with God? But our faith holds that human friendships are actually the copy or the analog. The original friendship is friendship between man and God. That's the archetype out of all other friendships. In fact, Adam was friends with God in the garden. And Enoch, that great patriarch, is said to have walked with God all the days of his life, which is a statement of his friendship. And in James chapter 2, 
the brother of our Lord, writes that Abraham is called the friend of God. And so we see that friendship with God is designed as the goal of human existence. And Abraham's friendship here in our passage was tested. All friendships are tested. And this test of Abraham's friendship with God is a story that has fascinated believers down through all generations as a model of someone who's completely resigned to the will of God in his life. It's also a story in modern times that frustrates skeptics and agnostics. How can a loving God, how can you say that you worship a loving God when he demands the sacrifice of a child? And what kind of faith can we praise in a man like Abraham when he willingly agrees to such an insane request as the skeptic might frame it? Well, we're going to learn about friendship with God this morning through this story. And it's through the test that God puts Abraham through that we discover depths of their relationship, their friendship. I'm hoping this morning that if you don't have this most special of all friendships, a friendship with God, I'm hoping that this morning's sermon will help you take the first steps in that direction. If you are a friend with God, if you've been walking with God for some time, then this morning, God is going to invite you to a deeper, stronger friendship than you had than when you came. So with that having been said, let's make sure we understand what's happening here because there's a lot going on in this passage. Isaac is born in chapter 21. We saw that last week, the miraculous birth of Isaac to a woman who was not just well past childbearing years. There was no human possibility for Abraham's wife, Sarah, to have a son. And this, it's, we saw it's, a, it's a, a, a prefiguring of the virgin birth of Jesus to the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the beginning of our passage in Genesis chapter 22, Moses writes, after these things, there's a, a number of years that go by from the time that Isaac is born in the beginning of Genesis chapter one, 21 to the time when we find this, this final test of Abraham's faith in the beginning of chapter 22. It's at least 10 or 15 years. It may have been as many as 20 or 30 years that have gone by. Isaac is no longer a baby. He's not even a toddler. At the very least, he's in his later teenage years. He may well be 25 or 30 years old at this point. And we see in the command, Abraham... And Abraham says, here I am. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So we see then in Genesis 22 a kind of a bookend to Abraham's life. Because where we, where we first meet Abraham, back in Genesis 12, he's called from the land of his fathers, Ur of the Chaldeans, to leave that land and go to a place that God would tell him. And so here we have Abraham, preeminently the man of faith, whose beginning with God is told to go someplace that he would be shown that he didn't know at the time. And here, in the end, we see the same thing happening. And notice that God takes a point, makes a point to emphasize to Abraham that he is his son. 
Ten times the word son shows up in our passage in Genesis 22. And in the beginning, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Three times we're told about Abraham's devoted, precious relationship. I think this is probably because, first of all, there is another son that Abraham has. His name is Ishmael. But he's not the son of the promise. There's only one son of the promise. And so God, in speaking to him in this way, is, is gently reminding him where the promise is to come. It's to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. But he's also emphasizing his devotion to, his, to this boy, your son, your only son, the son whom you love. It's as if God is highlighting or emphasizing that Abraham's loyalty is not to be to this human relationship as precious as it is, but ultimately his loyalty is to God. One theologian observes, as sad as it would be that a man should be deprived of his son, sadder still that his son should be taken from him in a violent manner, and all the more grievous that Abraham the father should be appointed as the executioner. So no matter what human loss we may have experienced within our families, to lose a son is the hardest of burdens for a parent. But nothing can compare to what this father was being asked to do, to become the means of his own son's demise. But it's more than that even still, because Abraham is a man of faith. He knows that the, the beauty, the glory, the, the preciousness of this son is not just that he was able to have a son in his old age, but he had come to believe that in Isaac, all the hopes of the world would flow. Through the son of Abraham, Abraham had come to believe that his very salvation came to rest, that the blessing of God was going to come to Abraham through his son. So it wasn't just a human loss Uh, Calvin said it was as if Abraham was being asked to take the very charter of his salvation and tear it up and throw it into the fire. And what a response Abraham gives. His response is to obey. He says, here I am, twice in our passage. This is what what a servant says to a king or what a son says to a father. It's what Isaiah said to God when God met him in that vision in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, here I am, Lord, send me. It's, it's the response of someone who, who's writing a blank check, who has no demands, who makes, there's no pressure here. It's, no, it's an unqualified resignation and surrendering of his life and all that matters to him to God. Here I am. And then he responds promptly as well. So Abraham, verse 3, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. It's a thorough response. And his son Isaac, he's cutting the wood for the burnt offering. He's being careful in his obedience. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It's also a, a persevering obedience. Notice It takes three days for them to get there. Imagine that journey. Three days walking with the servants and the donkey and the wood and the knife and his son, Isaac. 
And once they arrive, Abraham instructs his servants to stay put while he and his son Isaac journey farther still to the place where God had appointed the sacrifice to take place. Imagine how it must have felt to be the servants. You're accustomed to being useful and and helpful in these things, but in this case, this was a matter for Abraham to do and Abraham and Isaac alone. So he journeys three days, which is a biblical number. The, the, the day of three is, is, a, is a classic number for the preparation for some great task. And so three days he's journeying from where he's residing, where his family and his possessions are. This is a, this is a retreat of all retreats. He's retreating from that. And then he retreats further still from the servants so that he is, if you will, utterly alone with Isaac in this moment of obedience. And look at verse 5, what he says. Then Abraham says to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, it says. And then it says, And we plural, we will come back to you. I'll return to that in a moment. Abraham then takes the material for the sacrifice, it says. He takes the wood, the fire, and the knife. And the text tells us that Isaac, this boy of, we'll say, 25 years old, is fully capable of carrying that wood on his back. He's carrying the wood on his back that would be used for this offering. And at this point, the the story tells us that Isaac raises a concern. In verse 7, he says to his father Abraham, my father, and Abraham says, here I am, my son. Again, we see the word son. He says, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's calm And settled response is to show that his faith is in God, isn't it? He says, my son, God himself will see to providing for the lamb. This phrase in verse 8 deserves to be noted because provide for himself is actually in our original language, the Hebrew word for to see. It's like we might say in a modern workplace setting, I will see to that assignment myself. Or if you're a manager, you assign one of your subordinates, you'll say, uh, you know, young subordinate, whatever your job is, assistant, please look after that yourself. The idea of looking or seeing combined with action, that's what, what's in view here. And the, the actual word for for seeing is in Hebrew, it's yareh, yareh. And later on in the story, as the story unfolds, because God indeed looks to or sees to the provision, Abraham names the place, the place where God sees, the place where God provides. And so we have this precious name of God that's come to us, which is Jehovah sees, Jehovah Yareh, or Jehovah Jireh, if you've heard that before. 
So we note that Abraham's faith that God will see, God will provide in verse 8, later on is, is honored and rewarded. <clears throat> and in verse 9, once they come to the place that God had told them, Abraham builds the altar there and lays the wood in order. And this phrase deserves to be noted or underlined in your Bibles and binds Isaac, his son. Now Isaac, if he's 25, if he's 30 years old, even if he's 18, he's certainly much stronger than Abraham. At any point on this journey, and particularly when, when he realized that, that there was no lamb, <clears throat> Isaac could have resisted. Isaac could have changed his mind. At some point, and the story leaves blanks for us, doesn't it? A lot of them. At some point, surely Abraham would have explained what he's about to do, probably as the altar was being built just before he bound Isaac. Were there tears? Were there embraces? We do not know. But Abraham binds his son, places the wood on the altar, and lays the boy on the wood upon the altar. And at that point, Abraham, if there was any doubt in his mind, and the story doesn't indicate that Abraham wavered, though surely he must have at at points, he raises the knife and prepares to do as he had been commanded. But the knife is paused mid-strike by an appearance of the angel of the Lord. Twice to get his attention, he says, Abraham, Abraham, and the voice comes from heaven. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, verse 12. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Calvin notes that at the very moment of Isaac's death, it's as if God recalls him from death to life. And he says, now I know. Well, God doesn't need to know anything. We're the ones that need to know. You see, God permits us to go through these experiences in our lives, these trials that take time and cost us dearly as a way of showing to God as an act of worship what he knows to be true. See, faith hears, believes, and obeys. It's a threefold chord. Faith hears, faith believes, and faith obeys. There's no faith apart from that. True faith hears, believes, and obeys. Hearing this voice, he looks around, and in some surprise, the text says, behold, which is a a surprise word in the Bible. When you see behold, it's like, behold. I don't normally say, Polly, behold. Here are some strawberries from ShopRite. Abraham turns around, behold, there's a ram caught in a thicket. Where did it come from? How did it get there? Again, there are blanks in the story we're not told. And Abraham, it's it's conveniently caught in a thicket. He doesn't even have to go rustle the thing up. It's, It's right there waiting for him. And he prepares the ram for the sacrifice and offers it on the altar. And these are great words, again, worth underlining. 
instead of Isaac. Instead of Isaac, it says, in the place of Isaac. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, as part of Abraham's sacrificial worship, he names the place. So ladies, when your husband is constantly giving names to things, it's part of what we do. We, we, we give names to things as worship of God. And he said, I'm going to name this place. I'm going to call it Jehovah Jireh. The Lord has seen to the provision of a sacrifice. And then what follows in verse 15 and on is a confirmation or a reward for Abraham. The Lord speaks to him a second time. It's explicit there in verse 15. God reiterates the promise that has been made at least five or six times since Genesis chapter 12. He intensifies the promise. The language of the promise is richer, deeper, more expansive than it was the first time. And in addition, Abraham is given a hint of how the promise will come about because we see the name Rebekah mentioned there at the very end of Genesis 22. Now, why is Rebekah important? Well, Rebekah is Abraham's distant relative who will become the spouse of his of the son of promise through whom the promise will proceed. So we have a little foreshadowing of the good things to come in the story. That's, that's our story this morning. And I've taken some time to retell it because I think in, in our reading of this story, we read too quickly, and perhaps some of you have never read it before. But what can we learn from this story? What are some lessons from this story? Why do you think this story is in the Bible? Well, one lesson is, first of all, the reason for the test. The reason for this test is Abraham's faith needed to be deepened. God is testing Abraham because his faith wasn't deep enough. You see, faith includes the desire for more faith. Faith is never static. Faith is a living, vital thing. It's an organic thing. It grows And so if you find yourself with faith this morning, if you're a child or a teenager, maybe you're a student, maybe you're retired, you're closer to the end of life than the beginning. Wherever you are on life's journey, faith asks for more. Faith requires more. Yesterday's faith isn't sufficient for today's tasks. And so the test comes because Abraham needs more faith. It only makes sense because faith, in a way, is, speaking of friendship, it's embracing an invisible God, an infinite God. And the minute you come into contact with an invisible and infinite God, you become acutely aware of how little of this God that you know. And in the case of some of my best friends, I love to spend time with them because I get to know them more. I learn about them, and they help me get to know myself. And for my best friend, I can't spend enough time. And that way, that's the way it is with faith. Faith is always seeking more. So even though Abraham's faith had been tested already, in this final test, God is deepening or increasing his faith. I think of it like a soldier tests his weapons in advance so that he's ready for battle. If you're going on a long hike or a run, you need to have plenty of water available. In this test, God is digging the well 
of Abraham's faith deeper still. The Apostle Paul gives a vivid description of how Abraham's faith was deepened. And he had three days, keep in mind, to work on the implications of this commandment. He's turning it over in his mind. God had promised that the salvation of the world and my, and my direct lineage will come from the son of promise. And now, having commanded that, having promised that, the word of God is clear. Another word of God, seemingly in direct contradiction with the first word of God, tells me to sacrifice the very means of God's fulfilling his promise. And in the text that Jeremiah read earlier, we come to understand that Abraham, in his faith logic, somewhere on this three-day journey, came to believe that God can do the impossible. The phrase in Romans 4 is that God can call the things that are not as if they are. Something that isn't there, God is so powerful that he can create it. This is the word, let, God said, let there be light, and there was. Abraham had to come to receive and understand and deepen his faith in the character and the person of God at this level. You know, it's impossible for God to contradict himself. So somehow, these two seemingly contradictory commands, God, Abraham had to say, God will take care of its resolution. Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed are for us and our children, that we should walk in them. Abraham knew that the resolution of this paradox, this mystery, belonged with God, and, and it, it, it exceeded his ability in his own mind. But he did somehow know that God could do it. And in order to do this, he had to renounce his own thinking and rely completely on the power of God. John eight fifty six says this, the Gospel of John, Your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking, Rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. We never read in the Bible that Abraham meets Jesus. We do read that Abraham sees the day of Jesus by faith in advance. I think this passage is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 8. I think in his three-day journey to the land of Moriah and then going farther still to the mountain of Moriah, the place where God will provide. Somehow God revealed to Abraham there that God would provide a savior for the world with resurrection logic. Another lesson here is that Abraham responds with godly obedience. I mentioned this when I read it. He, he, he obeys without debate. He obeys without delay. He seems to obey without a doubt. And then this phrase, with worship. To think that a man could go to a moment like this and to describe it as worship is remarkable. And this is what true worship is about. It's the obedience of worship. It's going and serving and loving and sacrificing to God, even though it costs us a great deal, and to do so with a heart 
and attitude of worship. And then I want to point out finally the lesson here is that Abraham is rewarded for his obedience. The, the, the fact that he passes this test results in a reward in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring. Now some churches who are defective in their understanding of God's grace will teach that God rewards us for our good works. And they'll point to this passage and Abraham being a classic example of a man who did good works and was rewarded. But keep in mind, the only reason that God is rewarding Abraham with these things is because God promised it in the beginning. And remember, the initial promise was, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will multiply you. Many nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. I will protect you so that your enemies will run from you and you will triumph over them. And so the biblical concept of reward is that when God rewards us, he's simply crowning his gifts with undeserved further gifts. The gifts that he gives initially, he's, he enables us to use them, and then he puts a crown on those gifts that he has enabled us to use so that when we stand before God, it is not in our own righteous works, but we're praising and glorifying the God of undeserved grace. As I conclude, how can we apply this text to our lives? Well, I think some of you need faith, like saving faith. You need to start the journey of faith. Abraham's story and his test may be too advanced a lesson in the school of God. You see, Abraham started out in Genesis 12 with the baby steps of faith. And some of you may be more in a Genesis 12 frame of mind than in this Genesis 22. So you're not going to understand what Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac is all about unless you understand first and foremost that God is calling you to trust him. Jesus says it doesn't take much faith. The faith is small as a mustard seed. And, and he says, even with that small amount of faith, you can say to this mountain, be gone, and it will be moved into the heart of a sea. This is a figure of speech. It's a way of saying that there is no problem too big that God in faith can't solve. But it does require you to give up a certain amount of control in your life. It is a sort of surrendering. And in that sense, if you're new to faith, then the Isaac story is very important. Because you can see here that Abraham has resolved the mystery of the resolution of his problem into the Lord. He's not insisting on taking control. He's not giving God part of it and then holding back the other part of it. He's fully surrendered, fully yielded to God. I like this quote from um, a theologian named Gehardus Voss. Religious belief not exi exists not in the last analysis on what we can prove to be so, but on the fact that God says it's so. Faith requires that you take God at his word. And I'm reading a book, you might be interested, this book is called uh, Surrender, it's about the, the history of the band known as U2. 
and it's written by the lead singer of the band, Bono, and he has a, an interesting statement about faith in this book. He says, blind faith will not get you there, but it will get you started. Blind faith won't, won't get you there, but it will get you started. And, and in this regard, we are, in a sense, to see Abraham closing his eyes, at least at the beginning of this journey. He's like, I have no idea how God's going to do this. I got to trust him. I got to trust him. You have to believe that what you can't see matters more than what you can see. And it isn't just Bono who says this. Augustine, nearly 2,000 years ago, puts it this way. It is from faith that we seek understanding, not the other way around. So if you're struggling in responding to the call of God to give up control of your life and begin the journey of faith, you need to relinquish your desire to understand, at least in the beginning. Blind faith will get you started. Faith seeks understanding. Understanding comes along the way. But you have to give up. You have to surrender. But for those of you who are believers in Christ, Jesus wants you to identify the greatest trial in your, in your life this morning. What would that be? If you had to write it down, what is the, the most difficult test that you're experiencing? Where are you sensing that your spiritual life is, is at a traffic jam at an intersection where the, the, the gates on the railroad track are down and the train is going by and you're stuck, you're stalled, you're out of gas on the highway, you've run out, you're stymied, you're confused. You need to recognize that you are being tested by the Lord. Remember I said faith can't stay dormant. Faith seeks more faith. So God is calling you in this test to lean into it and to seek more faith than you had. You're, you're likely relying on an inadequate supply of faith for this particular trial. As I've been learning in my own walk with the Lord, I need more of God in my life for the, for the challenges that are in front of me today. Uh, I've been using this phrase, I need to bring my A game, which doesn't mean more polished, more intelligent, stronger, better to get, ha- having it more together. The A game for the Christian is more of God, more friendship with God, more listening to God, more humble dependence upon him, an, a needier spirit. Uh, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Our tendency as Christians, is to live life on our own power. But faith is more valuable than a precious metal like gold or silver. So Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, none of us will be called to sacrifice Isaac. You see, Isaac is a prototype of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Abraham, and there's only one Isaac. In fact, Mount Moriah, theologians believe, an archaeologist, was actually in Jerusalem, and it may well have been the Temple Mount. So in more than one way, this place will be called Jehovah-Jireh. Because God provided for all of our sins when Jesus, the greater Isaac, died on the cross. 
But having said that, we are on a journey to someplace difficult. And God is asking you to, to trust him more than you're trusting him. Do you believe that the thing that you're going through is to refine your faith? If so, do you see that that's the most precious thing that you have, is your faith? Or have you been enamored by the world around you? Perhaps Abraham had, had fallen in, in, in love with his son a little too much given what God was going to do. And that was part of the reason for this test. We don't know that. But have you fallen in love with some of the good gifts of God in your life a little too much? In which case, Abraham's obedience, his impressive obedience without delay, without debate, without a doubt, and with worship. That's what you're called to do today. You're called to worship God in this trial, through this trial, because of this trial, and leave the resolution of the trial in the lap of a loving God. I started this morning with a question about human friendship. One mark of a true friend is that you love that person not for what he or she does for you, but simply for who that person is. So I want you to recommit your, yourself to your friendship with God this morning, to trust not so much in the promises of God, although they are trustworthy, but trust the God of the promises. Abraham had to learn this twice. Neither the barren womb nor the threatening tomb would keep him from his friendship with God. May it be so for us. Let us pray. God, thank you for teaching us from your word this morning, for inspiring us and challenging us through the tests that we experience to a deeper friendship with you. Thank you that Jesus has bridged the chasm of enmity and adversity and judgment that was existed so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet faith not only hears and believes, but it also obeys. And there is no true faith without all three of those components. And so, Lord, I pray for my brother or my sister this morning, my, my spiritual mom or dad who is facing some trial or hesitation and not prompt obedience is taking hold. Lord, whether it's a besetting sin or some action or something that needs to be renounced or a difficult conversation or starting a new godly habit, Whatever that is, I pray that you would meet us in our weakness and that we would leave the resolution to you and offer you our hearts promptly and sincerely through the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.